Enter your code. Retinal scan required. Agent confirmed. Good morning and welcome to Now Playing's Mission Impossible Retrospective Series, Mr. Hunt. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch and review each movie in the Mission Impossible series. Your team for this mission will be Arnie, Stuart, and Jacob. This mission will be dangerous, filled with top secret plot spoilers and mild language. As always, should any member of your team be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow all knowledge of your actions. This recording will self-destruct in 30 seconds. Today we're discussing Mission Impossible Fallout, starring Tom Cruise, Henry Cavill, Henry Cavill's mustache, Bing Rains, Simon Pegg, Rebecca Ferguson, Sean Harris, Angela Bassett, with Michelle Monaghan, and Alec Baldwin, directed by Christopher McQuarrie. This is Arnie, and I'm exactly where I should be, and so are you. And Stuart? And this is Jacob, and I'm perfectly relaxed. Three years ago, we did our Mission Impossible retrospective. It does not seem that long, but I went back and re-listened to our old shows, and there's Brock, copyright 2015. I was like, wow, it's been that long. I also went back, this movie, honestly, is probably the one that I was most excited for outside of Infinity War this entire year. And I think I was more excited going into Mission Impossible 6 than I am even for Infinity War 4 or Star Wars Episode 9 next year. This movie had me hyped. The trailers, the practical stunts, everything about it looked so kinetic. Every Mission Impossible film I have rated higher than the one before. So I rewatched all five on video. I was pumped. I was really in fanboy mode for this film. Wow. Here's the thing. I always think I don't want to watch another one of these things. I'm like, oh, God. And they're making another. Why won't they just let it die? And then, yeah, when I saw that trailer, I was very impressed. It was the trailer, specifically the fight in the bathroom, the whole audience. I don't even remember what movie we were there to see, but that was more exciting than the movie that we ended up seeing. <laughs> and yeah, there was something that told me this was going to be a really amazing ride, if not a great spy adventure. It was at least going to be fun to watch. And I guess I am the skeptic with Mission Impossible. Like, I've liked most of I recommended, I'll say, most of them. But this isn't a franchise I look forward to, a new installment every few years. And I think a lot of it just has to do with Tom Cruise. I'm not a Tom Cruise fan. I kind of roll my eyes. Oh, you're going to run around like you're still, you know, in your 20s or 30s doing all these flips and trying to prove yourself with all these practical stunts. I do have to say, I saw the normal trailer first, and then I did see that bathroom fight trailer that you're talking about, Stuart, and that was pretty awesome. I'm like, okay, this movie might be entertaining. Like, that was a pretty great trailer, that one. I'm not sure anyone is a Tom Cruise fan anymore. I mean, I definitely feel <laughs> like his public image has changed, right? And his movies, when he is not Ethan Hunt, I mean, The Mummy? That was dead on arrival. American Made? Nobody went to that. It was okay. I did see both of those. American Made was better than The Mummy. I think his only successes in the U.S., let's really clarify this, mm -hmm. because globally, nobody cares about his couch jumping years ago, and he still has a huge international following for his films. Okay. So to us, we have our domestic viewpoint, and Tom... 
looks like he's over unless he's working with Christopher McQuarrie. The Jack Reacher films, the Mission Impossible films, that's where people want to see Cruise these days. So you're saying American Made played better internationally? American Made did make more foreign than domestic. Not much more. It was 50 domestic, 85 foreign. I did see them both. I'll say this in The Mummy's defense. The first half is dumb fun, and then the second half is just absolute junk. You know, the other thing, too, is nobody knows what's going on in his private life. That became highly radioactive. After the I love this child Katie Holmes jumping on the couch, and then all the bad press that Scientology in general has received, all they talk about on this press junket is how Cruz is committed to doing the helicopters, the running, and jumping. That's how they focus on what is amazing about Tom Cruise. I have no idea who he's dating. He could be married. Who knows? He (laughs) is currently unattached. I've done a lot of reading about this film as well. Because remember, Katie Holmes, I don't know what she had on Tom Cruise. I just remember her lawyer threatening to take something public. And all of a sudden, she has like full custody of the kids and a lot of money and is living the Hollywood high life and what, cameoing in Ocean's 8? Yeah, in Ocean's (laughs) 8. Yeah, high life. Then he had like another girlfriend for a very short time, like Penelope Cruz short. Mm -hmm. And now, according to what I'm reading, he's unattached. I don't really care about his personal life. Is he suicidal because of his love life? He certainly seems to be when it comes to the stunts, but he's come a long way for me. I judge actors by their movies, and I agree in... Many of his movies, he had that seething arrogance, just the slime on the screen. That seems gone these days. It seems like he's working to stay a star. He's working harder than he ever has. I'll say this, because again, not a Tom Cruise fan, didn't see The Mummy, didn't see American Made. Probably the last Tom Cruise film I saw was the last Mission Impossible one that came out. He's looking old for once. He's always had this perpetual youth about him. This film, he looks old, and I think that might have tempered me as well, because I'm like, oh, he's an old man now. Look at that gray stubble. Like, there's scenes where he almost looks bewildered. He's like, what what movie am I in again? And that did bring a humanizing factor to him, for me at least. I'll tell you what the most impossible mission is. If you had asked me back in 96, if Tom Cruise would still be the head of this team, I wouldn't have believed it. There has been no James Bond that lasted over 10 years. And here we are 20 years beyond the first film, and he has shown all comers. And even in this movie, we have Man of Steel Henry Cavill coming for his crown, and he will be completely flounced, humiliated, disfigured (laughs) even. Tom Cruise is here to tell all the younger action stars, I still am the king. I thought possibly Henry Cavill might be the new Renner. Like they might be grooming him. He is. Where's Jeremy Renner in all of this? I think they (laughs) renditioned him. Yeah, he showed up briefly in five. I don't know. He's so busy with CGI arms and tag. He couldn't be in Avengers 3. He couldn't be in Mission (laughs) Impossible 6. Keep in mind, like I said, Tom Cruise is the producer of these films. He's the star of these films. And they're his most bankable thing. I was surprised they even did a part two. And there was so much time between part one and part two, part two and part three. And now they're kind of getting more regular because he needs to have hits. He needs to stay in the spotlight to keep his career where it is. Now, next year, Top Gun 2. He's going back to that well to try to 
get people to a non-Mission Impossible film. He is hungry for franchises and meal tickets. He's defied the odds at his age to still be doing these stunts and commanding this box office and to be the center of the team, now six movies in, is an impossible feat. Maybe his most impressive stunt here. But, of course, widely reported that one of the big stunts here did go wrong. We can actually see on camera him breaking an ankle. I think this movie was supposed to come out last summer. Same summer as The Mummy, and it was delayed. They took a year to film this so that he could heal enough even to complete the film. Yeah, that was part of the appeal. It's like, oh, Tom Cruise, you're going to get to see him like shatter his ankle on screen? Okay, I'll pay for a ticket for that. <laughs> I kind of like that because Neville Dean and Taylor, who did Crank and Ghost Rider, the second one, had a rule. They said at Comic-Con, if you break a bone on film, that's the take we'll use. They promised that to all their stuntmen. I guess Christopher McQuarrie did that because, yeah, you see the take where Tom lands. And I've seen it from a couple different angles. I saw it like just from featurette angle where somebody had like an iPhone and was filming Tom doing it. And then in this film, it's a straight on camera shot. Dude makes a jump from roof to roof, lands, breaks his ankle. And he gets up and runs on it. Yes. On. Can you imagine the pain? Yeah. Oh, you got to give him respect. Yeah, he is quite a limp. And then that goes away in the next take. Yeah. <laughs> He's still limping in a few other takes. He came back while he had a cast on his ankle and still filmed some. So throughout that whole chase, because I knew I was distracted and paying attention, there are some limping scenes and there are some where he's Tom Cruise running and karate chop that air. Yes. <laughs> I have to give him respect for the devotion he's putting into this because look at Arnold, look at Sly, look at so many 80 stars who now are phoning it in and do, I mean, Sly's good in the Creed movie and I'm hoping he's good in the second one, but when it comes to like Escape Plan 3 or Expendables 3, he feels like he's really phoning it in and not doing as much. Cruz is putting himself out there, putting his body at risk. And part of it is he's really maverick, right? He's really a daredevil. Looking at behind-the-scenes featurettes and things, he loves this shit. And when they were doing Rogue Nation, he said to Christopher McQuarrie, I just started taking helicopter lessons because I want to fly a helicopter and do helicopter stunts. <laughs> and they couldn't fit it into the last movie. Plus, he had to get over 2,000 hours of flight time before he could fly solo. And when they were doing this movie, I got my 2,000 hours. I'm flying a helicopter and doing stunts <laughs> in a helicopter this time. He did the halo jump like a hundred times. He had to do several for practice and then a couple for the actual takes along with a cameraman with a camera strapped to his head. So this guy likes the adrenaline. He is Bodhi from Point Break, the movie star. Yeah, and I think this is how big blockbusters that aren't like Marvel or Star Wars compete with those big CGI fests. You know, I think about Fury Road and these Mission Impossible films. It's all about the practical effects. We're going to really talk that up. And for me, at least, there is an appeal to that, to see real people doing real stunts. And yeah, there's harnesses that are getting erased digitally, but there is an appeal to go see that on the big screen, just to see people doing real physical things, which doesn't happen in most movies these days. Yeah, I go both ways with it. It definitely makes it more fun to look at the action, but it makes him less relatable as a human being. The fact that he seems to be completely hopped up on adrenaline and that he can never be normal, that everything has to be something extreme. Even his wedding announcement was a couch <laughs> jump. So there is still a Tom Cruise problem that comes with the Tom Cruise commitment. But yeah, if I'm here for an action movie, probably nobody else in Hollywood is more willing and eager to deliver the thrills. And 
it made others step up. Again, I think you're right. Domestically, they're kind of keeping Tom Cruise behind a curtain. He did not do much press for this. I ended up staying home from work sick one day after Comic-Con, and Henry Cavill was on every show. And because we're covering this movie, I'm like, God damn it, I'll watch Kelly and Ryan Ooh. live with Kelly and Ryan, which used to be live with Regis and Kathy Lee. Mm-hmm. And yes, he was on Good Morning America. He was in New York going from studio to studio, but it was Henry Cavill they're putting out there. And half the time he's talking about his mustache and half the time he's talking about how Cruz did all his own stunts and Henry Cavill wanted to do all his too. He wanted to see if he could keep up. He's 35, 20 years younger than Tom Cruise, but Tom actually wouldn't let him do certain stunts. (laughs) Tom specifically said, no, you will not do the halo jump because you will kill me. I need to have a professional stuntman, not you doing this with me. And that chemistry comes through in the movie. I I definitely think we should get into talking about the plot here. How did you guys see the film? I know there were scenes filmed in IMAX. Opening night, first show, IMAX. About two-thirds full, I'd say. I took Friday off of work. I went to a 9.30 a.m. show. So it was me and about 20 other seniors there. (laughs) I was the youngest person in the crowd. I went and saw the 3D. This is actually being released in Real D, kind of a matinee, early afternoon showing. And I want you to do the plot to tell me what happened in the beginning, because they got the lens wrong, and nobody was (laughs) getting up to complain, so I had to go and find someone, and, and I totally missed the beginning data dump, so I need to know what went on. And for the 3D, nobody see this in 3D. I've been following Christopher McQuarrie on Twitter. He's been very open about the making of this film, and somebody said... I'm going. Should I see this in 3D? And Macquarie said, I haven't seen it in 3D. Mm -hmm. The director is so not worried about this post-conversion crap that he focused completely on editing in 2D, filming in 2D, and didn't even put the glasses on for one viewing of the 3D film. Yeah, it's a spectacular looking movie, so I could recognize that 3D was happening, but I think that even if I was watching 2D, I'd have a similar sensation. So tell me what I missed. I know it has something to do with apostles and getting some plutonium. Arnie, hit us with the plot. It's been two years since the events of Rogue Nation. Even though confusingly, it's well, you're right. This was supposed to come out last year, hence two years since the events of Rogue Nation. And the IMF, Impossible Mission Force, is still dealing with the fallout. While the head of evil group The Syndicate, Solomon Lane, played by Sean Harris, is in jail, many anonymous syndicate terrorists called the Apostles have been trying to spread chaos in his absence. Some Apostles have even arranged to buy three plutonium cores from Russia with the intent of setting them off, creating a huge disaster from which the survivors can emerge stronger for the sake of humanity. Tom Cruise's super spy Ethan Hunt and his crew... Hacker Luther Stickle, played by Ving Rhames, and comic relief Benji Dunn, played by Simon Pegg, are tasked with intercepting these cores. But the Syndicate is one step ahead of them, and Ethan makes the choice to save Luther's life, which means the Syndicate got the cores. Now Ethan is charged with fixing this mistake by IMF Secretary Alan Huntley, played by a returning Alec Baldwin. But the surprise is when Angela Bassett's character of CIA Director Erica Sloan shows up, the president thinks this mission is too important to leave to Ethan's team alone, so she's inserting one of her best assassins to accompany the IMF, August Walker, played by a famously mustached Henry Cavill. They are sent to try and capture and impersonate John Lark, the man who is trying to buy the plutonium cores. They do kill Lark, and Ethan takes his place dealing with arms broker The White Widow, played by Vanessa Kirby. 
But the plutonium seller doesn't want money. He wants the release of Solomon Lane, and Ethan has no choice but to agree and rescue the terrorist he captured last film. But a complication is MI6 agent Ilsa Faust. After the events of Rogue Nation, she tried to quit the spy life, but MI6 has ordered her to assassinate Solomon Lane because he knows too much about MI6 operations. In the breakout, Ilsa kills many of the White Widow's goons, so now the price for the plutonium went up. Even though Ethan delivered Solomon Lane, he now also has to deliver Ilsa. But there's another complication. The John Lark that Walker and Ethan killed may not have been the real John Lark. Through seeds planted by Walker, the CIA believes Ethan to be John Lark and using his IMF status as a cover. Secretary Hunley shows up to confront Ethan, but Hunley suspected all along what's revealed. It's Walker who is the traitor. Walker is John Lark, and he wants the plutonium to create terror and free Lane. Despite the entire IMF trying to stop Walker, he kills Secretary Hunley and escapes with two plutonium cores and Lane. The intent is to detonate the nuclear warheads in Kashmir, poisoning the water supply that feeds a third of the globe. More, previously Lane set off a smallpox epidemic there and arranged for Ethan's ex-wife Julia, played by Michelle Monaghan, to be the doctor helping the infected, along with her new husband, also a doctor. So the bomb will not only kill one-third of the population, but the love of Ethan's life, epitomizing the struggle of this film for Ethan to either save the globe or save the one person. Now he has to do both, so his team infiltrates. Lane stuck around to die and watch the nukes go off, but Ilsa and Benji incapacitate him and prepare to disarm one bomb, while Luther and Julia work on disarming the other. But to disarm the bomb also means removing a key from the remote timer, which Walker has. A helicopter chase ensues with Ethan crashing his helicopter into Walker's, and then they continue to fistfight on land. But with literally one second to go, Ethan pushes Walker off a cliff and gets the key out of the timer, saving his wife and a third of the world. Afterwards, CIA Director Sloan comes up to Ethan and says she realizes the world really does need the IMF, and the CIA gives Lane back to MI6 to do with as they will, as credits roll. Okay, take a deep breath. <laughs> that was a lot. All right, I'll just put this out there. This plot is needlessly complicated. There are so many dealings, and it's especially in the first half of this movie, and it turns out so few of them are actually important. But there's so many players in this chess game at the opening, I really think there was story problems that may have gotten rewritten in that year they took off while Tom Cruise healed, and they had certain scenes referencing characters, because it's really straining my brain to understand who stole the plutonium versus who's buying the plutonium versus what does the White Widow have to do with anything versus is she Black Widow's cousin? I'm confused. <laughs> well, it's also, I think, the first one that is really a sequel to the previous installment. They've all felt standalone until this one. I'm like, oh, yeah, I vaguely remember that character from three years ago. Oh, yeah, that one. What was their story again? I was so glad I rewatched Rogue Nation before this. Christopher McQuarrie is telling people on Twitter, they're like, do I need to see the previous Mission Impossibles before this yes, one? Yes, you do. And he's like, no. <laughs> Oh, this film stands alone. I'm like, bullshit, because I would have been so confused who Ilsa was. 
I think I would have gotten everything else. I mean, I remembered the wife because that's been a thorn in my side this whole time is what happened to Julia. But I completely forgot Ilsa. I completely forgot Solomon Lane. I forgot Alec Baldwin had taken over as the head of the IMF. I was really happy to watch it again. So the opening of this movie is not Jeremy Renner dying. That's what I assumed I missed. Like, how do they explain that he's not even in this? He's just never brought up. It's Tom Cruise getting married at the beginning. Yeah, it's a dream sequence, an obvious dream sequence, because it's... Do you take care to have, to hold, to escape from your own true self? And Solomon Lane is there at the proceedings. Right. They're going to bring him back. This is the first returning villain. The fact that they were starting with Julia on a beach getting married, I was like, okay, this is obviously some dream sequence. I knew that even as I was hitting the exit doors to try and find help for why the screen was so blurry. (laughs) But by the time I come back, Tom Cruise is sitting in front of a book that's telling him that the syndicate is now the apostles. Anything else in between? Nope, that's pretty much it. He wakes up and he gets a mysterious package with his mission if he chooses to accept. That's where it's explained that Solomon Lane's operatives are wreaking havoc called the Apostles. So the Apostles are the syndicate. They're just syndicate agents. This is where we're told the Apostles did a smallpox release that threatened a third of the population. That was their first attack, theoretically, in that area between India and China. Yeah, the title is really referencing this. The fallout of beating the syndicate is now that you have to deal with the apostles. And something, when he gets that mission, it is in Homer's Odyssey. And if you're familiar with that, it's about someone going on a big, long journey to get back to his wife. I'm like, oh, that's got to be coming back in this. That's going to be the end. Something with his real wife. I remembered he had disappeared because of what happened in 3. And so I'd, I'd like that little piece of foreshadowing there, that little Easter egg hint. I was promised by Christopher McQuarrie on Twitter that this movie would put to bed once and for all the speculation about Julia. So I was really glad about that. And in this opening mission is where we first hear the name. Is it John Locke or John Lark? Lark. L-A-R-K. Because at first I was thinking John Locke, who was a character from Lost. But Lark, that's a joke. So I was confused on pronunciation. But John Lark is the one who called for the annihilation of the current world order. And he's the one who arranged the purchase of plutonium from Russia. And we never heard of him before. If he was part of the syndicate, I presume that he was, he was underneath the Solomon Lane character. Right. Lark and Lane were like a Lennon and McCarthy duo, and we just (laughs) never got to the Lark part of it. Actually, I think Lark was more like the backing band in James Brown's band. You know, James Brown had a lot of band members that went with them. I think this was just one of them who ended up being the most ambitious once Lane went to jail. Yeah, and you know, I like spy movies when they can tap in. I've said in previous Mission Impossible installments, when you tap in to what's going on in our times, I do feel like we're at a real moment where people are tearing down institutions. Internationally, people are questioning the system that has been in place and whether it's a better idea to tear it all down. The idea that there is an appeal to something like the syndicate or the apostles, maybe you don't like their extreme methods. I presume most people in the theater are not going to be rooting for them. But the idea that they don't want the British government, the CIA, all of the things that keep us 
living in a 20th century world order in place, it does have that quality. It feels like the alt-right in the way they talk about the deep state. See, I have the total opposite reaction to this, and I guess I can see that a little bit. I'm watching this. Okay, where's our modern politics in this movie? I think they kind of want to stay out of that. This is a big blockbuster, Tom Cruise. Not a whole lot of subtext. To me, this was pretty much just a straight action movie. I'm going to come somewhere in the middle on this. I definitely thought that this terrorism feeds to our current fears that anybody can show up with a nuke. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when a dirty bomb is set off and will it be set off in Kazakhstan or will it be set off in Times Square? If it was 2003, I would see that. Now in 2018, I guess that's just been a fear for so long. (laughs) It's just fodder for Hollywood now. But I don't see a lot of parallels with Brexit or anything like that. This is going to be the standard orders. The big question is, is IMF needed? Do we still need spies that are outside the system or do we just want assassins? Which is, of course, the whole point about Brexit and the direction America is taking is, do we look internationally or do we just focus on ourselves? That is the theme of this movie. Is it worth it to just focus on one or do we think about the millions? The IMF is going to make the case that Tom Cruise can do both at the same time. He will save the meter maid and he will save the world world in this film. This is something I saw in the trailers. I'm like, oh, it's another Mission Possible where Ethan is going to screw something up because he's got to save one of his crew. And I feel like that's been the plot for everyone. And then they get disavowed and they got to go rogue. And with this plutonium cell that they open up on, I mean, we see Luther, someone grabs him out of his van. He's supposed to bring the money to buy this plutonium. We get a shootout happening. And yeah, they go to save Luther. They just kind of forgot the plutonium. They didn't just secure it. I didn't feel like they blatantly lost the plutonium to save one of their crew this time, which I liked. It was a nice little change. It wasn't so obvious. Well, Benji had that remote control car from Tomorrow Never Dies, was it? Where Pierce Brosnan had it? Why didn't they just throw the plutonium in the car and have Benji remote control it away while Ethan saved Luther? But yeah, it's the distraction. And I'm surprised also that the syndicate doesn't kill them all. For some reason, even though the syndicate has them outgunned, has a gun literally to Luther's head, and Luther's a hostage, and I would think could kill Ethan and Benji, they just get the plutonium and are like, see ya. All right, so here's my only guess to that, because you're right. When you actually look at the convolutions of who's wanting the plutonium and the passing of the plutonium, I think we're to understand Solomon Lane behind it all, what he most wants beyond setting off three bombs or, you know, maybe two bombs at the end, is that he wants to shame and humiliate Ethan. So it wouldn't be enough to just get the plutonium. He needs to keep Ethan alive and get him to the moment where he realizes the fallout of all his good intentions. And I'll take it a step further. First of all, I don't think Lane's involved in this at all. Lane is in deep captivity. This is Lark. Lark is doing all of this. Lark has the manifesto that says we have to kill a bunch of the population to rebuild. But haven't they been talking in secret? Because later when they have their one-on-one, they seem like old chums. Well, they worked together before, and Mm. I imagine if you write a manifesto about something, I won't be shocked about the topic. It'll be like, oh yeah, Stuart brought that up a lot. Of course that's his manifesto. But I further think we'll never know for sure, but I think that's Henry Cavill who breaks into Luther's van. Henry Cavill is playing this game where he wants the plutonium, 
and he wants to free Lane. And so he's playing this double jeopardy where he now has the plutonium. In the very first scene, he gets the plutonium. If all he wanted was the nukes, he could just go set that off. He's already set off smallpox. Now he could go set off the nukes. But he's going to use this broker of the White Widow because he needs Tom Cruise to break Lane out. And the reason why that is, is because he's Richard Spencer, and he needs Steve Bannon to feel complete. (laughs) Is that the idea that he just needs the other half of himself in order to take down the deep state? I think he's just loyal to his boss. (laughs) So is it the apostles that steal the plutonium? Because I thought that was the apostle stealing the plutonium, and then you find out John Lark still needs to get the plutonium for the apostles. I was confused by this. I kind of just moved on and went with it, but yeah, it wasn't clear. It's confusing as all hell. And I'm hypothesizing here that Lark stole the plutonium, but they don't know it's Lark. Right. And so then Lark is now posing to buy the plutonium. The only way this makes any sense is if this is all a con set up by Henry Cavill's character. Cavill and or what he thinks Lane might want as well. Again, I'm never convinced that they don't have some dialogue together, but yes, I agree. The point of it is, this is the bad guy manipulating all things, pulling puppet strings, leading Ethan into a trap. That's where we're going with it. I think Mission Impossible movies have always gotten in trouble in their plots and trying to show double crosses and ripping off masks to reveal it's somebody else. Don't look too closely at the plot. See more about how you feel about the characters, the locations, and, of course, the action. They got better, though, because that's the gripe I had with part one, mostly, is John Voight's plot makes no damn sense. Right. And it got better. I think it really improved with three, four, and five. We're taking a step back here in terms of storytelling. So, yeah, then the question becomes, how much do you care about stunts? In how much about the mask getting ripped off, because we're going to see that next. It's a nice little fake out. We cut and we hear that three nukes went off in Mecca, Israel, and the Vatican. And I'm like, wow, this is really daring. And then I'm like, no, this is Mission Possible. Wolf Blitzer, he's going to pull that mask off. I knew there was a trick here. But what I thought was the nukes did go off, that they were working with CNN. And so what they were seeing wasn't actually CNN's broadcast. They had Wolf Blitzer doing a private broadcast to save the world. I didn't guess that they would have Wolf Blitzer pull his mask off. Yeah, that Wolf Blitzer playing himself to come in here (laughs) to actually play Benji wearing a Wolf Blitzer mask. I didn't catch that it's like the opening of part one. They're not in a real room. It's not a real newscast. The nukes never really went off. How much was a fugazi, to use a term that we'll be talking about soon, I didn't get, but I knew there was some bullshit here. Yeah, and I felt like this is the most real-world stuff. They have this doctor who, I guess, has the plans for the nuclear device, but they can't get into his phone. And, like, if you follow technology, like, the FBI hates Apple because the encryption's too strong, and so they gotta trick this doctor to get him to put that code in. I guess he's not using thumbprints. And they got him from a car accident. We just, that's off-screen. We didn't see that car accident. Correct. He wasn't there at the blue 
plutonium by. I was confused why all of a sudden we had this Dr. DeBruck in a hospital room. But the point of it is, is that this is a great stinger to grab you to lead into the credits. And yeah, it's convincing because Ethan is really guilt-ridden. When we're seeing the news broadcast about the three cities that were bombed and he looks like he's near tears, that's not a put-on. He's not putting on an act for this guy. He's in a different room. He just feels bad because it's all on him. It's weighing heavy on his shoulders that he let the plutonium get away. And now whatever does happen with it, no bomb has been set off yet. But when it does... That is blood on Ethan's hand. But the trailers sold me a movie that this isn't. And that's actually a good thing. I'm fine with trailers that lie like they did with the Avengers film showing Hulk at the end and whatnot. Here, they show the scene of Luther holding Ethan back from beating this guy up. And Ethan, that's not who we are. And Ethan's like, well, maybe we should reconsider that. I honestly thought this would be more political about being aggressive and just not being as diplomatic, but I don't see Ethan deciding to use more violent means. In fact, a huge part of this movie is him trying to use less violent means and not have a minimalized body count. So the movie I thought I was getting was not this one. Also, we'll get to it, but in the trailers, I always thought it was Henry Cavill versus Tom Cruise in that bathroom fight. I didn't realize they were fighting together. Same here, because I just heard, oh, Henry Cavill can't shave that mustache because he's the villain in the next Mission Impossible film. And I do think there's some rewriting here because they had a year to do it where they reveal that earlier because it was spoiled thanks to Justice League. They call it Mustache Gate. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't tell how to feel about him. I didn't watch a lot of press material. I came into this just assuming he was the bad guy. But the way he's introduced here and for how he spends much of the first third of the movie, he's just kind of like the guy that doesn't deserve, the arrogant prick, the guys who are normally in charge of covert operations who think they know what they're doing and lead us into bad situations. I think that he might just be an antagonist in that way. I wasn't quite convinced that he was behind it all. I thought that because I knew Solomon Lane was going to be in it, that he was really the one pulling the strings. If I hadn't rewatched Rogue Nation, I would have completely not known who this Solomon Lane guy was. But I guess this doctor in the bed is working for Lark, and that's why he wants Lark's manifesto read on CNN. It's a nice trick here at the beginning, and now they know what the basic plot is. They've got the plans for the nukes. It's going to be a five megaton nuke, more than has ever been dropped in all of the wars, which basically is more than what U.S. dropped on Japan. We now have our plot and we have our MacGuffin. So why does the CIA get involved? I mean, I really want to know how Lark, as Walker, got himself a tag-along on this mission. No, that's easy, because Ethan failed. Everything about this plot hinges on the understanding that if Ethan hadn't made that choice to save Luther, he focused on the one and not the many, and because of that, plutonium is in bad hands, and it's on him, and Angela Bassett don't play. She don't like no Tom Cruise, and she's going to get somebody younger and deadlier, and he's going to be the one to get the plutonium back. Yeah, this is true to real life. I mean, again, if you read what happened after 9-11, why was an intelligence shared? It's because there is infighting amongst all these government agencies. CIA doesn't like the FBI, vice versa, and yeah, now we have this fictional IMF. No one likes each other. Can we just say Angela Bassett between Black Panther and this is having like the best year ever? (laughs) 
Yeah, she's always been a favorite of mine. I always like seeing her, and she leaves me wanting in this. She's mostly in the background, but yeah, she's tough and strong. She's making the right choice. You would question whether the IMF is capable of doing it. The comparison that made me laugh was like a Halloween, that they're just about cheap masks. (laughs) And I, I think that, yeah, on an outside perspective, if you hadn't seen what they had done, you might think that's exactly it. These are some phony baloney theater kids that just like to play dress up, and we're the CIA. We're the ones that do the real work. But how did Walker get assigned to this? He is the big traitor. Because he's the mastermind. I mean, this is always the bad guy thing. They're always able to get themselves in the right spot. What is said, what I heard was that Walker is got a high body count. He's going around killing a lot of apostles, which he probably isn't. It's probably all stage. But the problem that has created is that means they don't have a lot of leads. He shoots first and asks questions later, so they don't really know what the apostles' plans are. The only thing that they know is that this Lark guy is going to buy plutonium at a Paris nightclub, and so he and Cruz have to... I don't know why they have to come from the air. Are the bouncers that tough? Well, no, no, it's because they only have like two hours to get there. They're cutting a very tight and when Angela Bassett comes out and is like shut it down and they turn the plane off I'm like that thing's huge that's got to take like an hour to start back up like there are so many procedures and they only got a couple of hours to get over to Paris to meet the White Widow. The IMF is terribly underfunded if they have to borrow a CIA plane to go on this now this halo jump though they talk about this halo jump non-stop it was practical mostly Really bad CGI for the clouds, but... This... Wait, 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 wait. You're telling me, because I noticed this, you know, if you've seen Gravity, there's this huge, long, like, 15-minute take where, of course, it's all CGI because it's in outer space. But yeah, you get this shot. I love how Ethan's going with Walker and like, okay, you got your oxygen here and we're going to jump. And he's telling him everything because he doesn't know about all this cool IMF stuff, I guess. But Walker will pull Ethan's oxygen hose and then jump out. And we get this shot, you know, head on of Ethan putting that hose back in and then jumping out of the plane and like hammer spins around him and follows him it's a pretty long take this is all practical this isn't a green screen nope this is a cameraman who jumped out right before wow with a camera strapped on his head the reason the camera goes all around is because the cameraman is trying to be like where's tom oh there's tom (laughs) yeah the shot is so long i'm like this has got to be cgi wow that's a pretty great stunt then most everything they did including the interaction with the other guy where they have to put the hose back on is all practical and Cruz practiced this a lot in a wind tunnel there were a couple of green screen shots in a wind tunnel done as inserts but plain to ground like 99% real yeah and this is why you want to see this movie and why you want to see it on as big a screen as possible or even 3d I didn't mind it in 3d it didn't necessarily accentuate in 3d but I do think that yeah this is why we still have big screen experiences so people can feel this kind of rush No computer can ever give the chaos that a camera strap... I mean, a GoPro, basically. A 8K GoPro. Yeah, no, it felt very real, but it's such an extreme thing they're shooting. I'm like, this has got to be faked. It's completely legit. I don't find it as exciting as they do. It's a good-looking scene. Yes. But... The whole thing that he just has to save Walker, I'm pretty sure Walker's the bad guy. I'm 
just disappointed he never twirls the mustache. You don't, you need to have a mustache. You're going to twirl it. Yeah, what does r- slow the scene down for me is Walker gets struck by lightning. They got to jump through these clouds where there's a storm going on. It's comical to me how it happens. You know, if it was a different type of film, it would have worked. And this one where, you know, of course, we're going to get crazy stunts, but it feels like it should be a bit more grounded. And this huge bolt like just takes him out. And then he's totally fine afterwards. It is comedy. I do feel like this is Cruz just telling millennial wannabe action stars, don't come. I can do this better than you. You're arrogant and you think you can make this jump. I know how to do this better than you. And, you know, it even ends with the punchline that when the guy wakes up, he doesn't even realize his life has been saved. He mocks that Ethan lost his oxygen tank. Again, we're set to think he's a villain in the fact that he's a thorn in Ethan's side. I was not sure at this point that that also meant that he was behind the evil plots, that he would buy plutonium. That I was starting to question, actually, once they get into this nightclub where DJ Harvey is spinning. It is not Imagine Dragons' friction song. The redo of the theme is actually Imagine Dragons. They use it in the trailers. I love that song. I went out and immediately bought that album. I didn't have that one yet. I like Imagine Dragons anyway. But man, friction, that's a song that was just thumping. I couldn't believe it was Imagine Dragons. Yeah, and I can't believe it wasn't made for this movie, but it came out a couple albums ago. Yeah. They just happened to still use the Lalo Schifrin theme without having any idea that it would ever be used for the movie. And it wasn't used for the movie. It was used for the advertising of the movie. And I don't know this DJ. I literally wrote in my notes, Eurotrash DJ typical. (laughs) I didn't realize it was somebody. It does feel like 90s trance. Yes. It is the most amazing nightclub I've ever seen, ever. But it does not sound like contemporary sound today. They didn't want to have a kid up there, I guess. But it's all about getting into the bathroom. (laughs) Jeez. Yeah, they have RFID bracelets, so you have to badge in and out of the party like you're going to work. Then they get in there, and yeah, they have to find this person scanning for the RFID. Now, in retrospect, I'm wondering, is it actually on Henry Cavill and... That's why Henry Cavill goes up to this Asian man and says it's him? Or did they tag the Asian man all along? Ethan and Walker don't have those badges. They have to steal him off of this, who they think is John Lark. Ethan will take his badge. I don't think they have their own. Oh, they have their own, like, anonymous person that got in there. They need his VIP in order to be authenticated to get to the White Widow. Because the White Widow has a midnight deadline. Come to me in the private VIP lounge, and I'll cut you the plutonium deal. And so they have to get there by midnight. It's kind of an arbitrary thing, but he needs to be wearing the Lark band, wearing the Lark mask, and so they need to get this guy's face. It's all about doing that. And of course, Cavill screws it up because he hits him in the face. And then it's not digitizing right. It's not that he hit him in the face. It's that he hit him in the face with their laptop. Yeah. <laughs> so it's the laptop that broke. I thought, oh, okay. I thought that was a pretty nice thing. I wondered why Cavill was carrying a briefcase the whole time. I'm like, does yeah. he got papers in there? And then he uses it as a weapon. And I was like, damn, that is a hard hit. But it was the laptop in there with the cracked screen now. Yeah, Ethan was supposed to get him with that injection, and fake Lark fights him off. Yeah, Cavill just smacks him with, yeah, that briefcase. I'm like, man, what's in that thing? That was solid. And the reveal is, what is that, a laptop with a built-in 3D printer? That is awesome. No, actually, I saw one of these at Comic-Con. They actually have these now, these basically USB or iPad attachments. 
that you just move around an object and it will do a 3D scan. And they're even reasonably priced. You can get them for $500. I could like take my Starbucks cup here and 3D scan it just by waving this thing around it. And then if I had a 3D printer, I could 3D print a Starbucks cup. Yeah, but they still don't have these band-aids that you put them on your larynx and you sound like whoever you want to. (laughs) No, they don't have that yet. Believe me, I'm going to get that and become Lou Ross. That's my dream. The tech exists because someday I will never have to edit a show again. I could just take what you guys have said and make it what I want you to say. Yeah, you you just type in whatever you want us to say and it will use our voice. I've seen that. Yeah, scary stuff. You just have to then make it real time and a Band-Aid on the throat. And then... We get a gay bathroom sex joke and some guys who I can't even tell in this movie if they're razzing the guys who they think are having gay sex or if they want to join in. I I thought they might want to join in, yeah. Orgy in the bathroom stall. No, it's totally a razz. I mean, they just think it's hilarious that this is going on. I think it's strange that there's nobody else in the bathroom. Yeah, no, I thought it was weird that they thought it was weird. I'm like, I figured that's lots of bathroom sex both ways (laughs) going on at, at a rave like this. Yeah, I guess they just felt because it was underpopulated they could have their little fun and sing La Vie and Rose. But what it tells you is, oh, the fight is over. It's just a breather. It just gives this Lark wannabe a chance to wake up and continue the fight and get the upper hand. Get a pipe, beat Cavill, and yeah, have Tom Cruise at the disadvantage. He needs to be saved. This guy reminds me of Jackie Chan, the way he grabs that pipe and uses it. Macquarie said it's actually a nod to Buster Keaton. Mm -hmm. But man, this fight is to me the high point of the film. They throw this guy through a wall. They're hooking necks with pipes. No stunt feels as visceral as some of these hits do. Yeah, when he throws him through that bathroom mirror, which is like in the middle partition, so he goes straight through it and comes out the other side. It's a great fight. And the way it's shot, that camera's moving around him. Yeah. What's fascinating to me about it is because everything is so sterile and white, I have trouble delineating the floor from the walls, from the mirrors. They're going through walls that I didn't see that walls were there. I'm like, oh, I guess there was something there. It's- I'm going to blame your 3D for that mm. because 3D, it mutes colors. Even on a great projector, it mutes colors a little. And I thought it looked good. Here's something interesting behind the scenes is Macquarie is the first director to make two Mission Impossible films, and he did them back to back. But he knew every Mission Impossible film was directed by somebody else and had a different flavor. He tried to mimic that. He fired his entire crew and hired an entirely new crew, cinematographer, stunt people. I noticed that. I think the cinematographer they got is amazing. The shots in this movie, the framing in this movie, it's, there's just a dialogue scene between Ilsa and Ethan later on, and it cuts back and forth between them, but they're on sides of the screen. There's a top-down shot of Cruz on a circular staircase. I think this is the most pretty of all of the Mission Impossible films. Yeah, I'm like, wow, this Mission Impossible feels so different than the other ones. I'm like, who directed this one? I'm like, this is the same guy as Rogue Nation? it feels like a totally different director. Yeah, I'm going to credit the director of photography. The cinematographer is Rob Hardy, who's known mostly for shooting really good music videos and for some recent sci-fi movies that, with little money, have looked really great. Annihilation and Ex Machina, they are very sterling representations of near-future cyber technology and a perfect transition into the spy movie. That's where you want to see someone that has some skills with tech and special effects shots. But here, this fight... The music, everything going on. I absolutely love it. And it it is comedic here because at the end, 
Ilsa pops in and shoots this guy in the face. This is one of three times I jumped in the movie. When Ethan was wrestling with that gun, I'm like, oh, we know he's going to turn it around. He's going to shoot the guy. And then this gunshot happens. I literally jumped in my seat. I wasn't expecting the noise to be so loud. And it's left this huge thing of blood. They're like, can you scan it? He needs a face for me to scan it. Kind of reminds me of Pulp Fiction here, the end of way the gun going off in the back seat and what have you. They can't make the mess. One of the favorite laugh out loud jokes for me was hope is the strategy. Henry Cavill's like this can't be the strategy and she's like you're new aren't you? <laughs> yeah it's pretty funny too some people walk in there's this pool of blood and they gotta pretend that Tom Cruise punched Henry Cavill in the nose and it's just a bloody nose I guess. Extreme bloody nose. <laughs> I can't imagine that bloody of a nose with Ilsa showing up though I vaguely remembered her from Rogue Nation and we've talked to who is John Lark and she is very she's like I can't tell you who's giving my information I'm like ooh maybe because I'm like it's Henry Cavill right we all know it's Henry Cavill I'm like oh wait maybe it's her maybe John Lark I mean that's a typical Hollywood thing to do it's actually a woman I've kind of ruled Cavill out at this point I'm curious to see what they're going to learn in the VIP lounge because again it's all building to the fact that if they get past the bouncers they can go and buy those three cores of plutonium that slipped away in Berlin. She has them. I don't know how she got them. I don't know who the buyer is behind them. I guess it is Cavill. That's, we'll just assume that he and the apostles are pulling all of these strings. It gets my head to hurt if I think about it too much. <laughs> Can someone explain this White Widow scene? Because I feel like I maybe had left to go complain about the projecting at this point. Like I don't understand. I thought they were going to buy plutonium and they kind of just flirt and set up another meeting. Well, this is a callback. I admit, I fully got this just by, in the last few minutes, trying to find out who's who and where I've seen her before. And I just read this little detail. This character is the daughter of Vanessa Redgrave in the first Mission Impossible. Vanessa Redgrave, Max was an arms dealer. If you remember, Tom Cruise kind of fights with her to get the knock list on the train. Yeah, I mean, I just rewatched the movie. <laughs> yeah, and she's here talking about her mother's charity work and thank you for coming to my club and paying for all of that. She is of that lineage. This is that Max's daughter. I did not catch that at all. Yeah, I don't know how you would other than reading Wikipedia. <laughs> that was my source. Top secret. Don't tell nobody. I was confused the whole time because I still thought it was that Delavine girl from Suicide Squad too. I didn't realize <laughs> it wasn't. So Yeah, she's from The Crown. She's mostly done period things. I think that that's one of the tricks of Mission Impossible is that they take people that aren't necessarily associated with action, at least the women, and then, yeah, they put them through six months of training and then they got moved. Suddenly she can pull knives out of gardeners and do things you would not expect her to do if you'd saw The Crown. Yeah, so everyone starts attacking because they think Ethan is John Lark and People want to kill John Lark? Is that what's going on? Or maybe they don't think he's John Lark. I think that this chick, the White Widow, knows very well that he's playing. You find out she's playing, like, full size. Again, I'm confused when yeah, she shows up at the yeah. end and she's working with MI6 or something. That felt like a rewrite. That definitely, when Alec Baldwin eventually will say, well, see, she was working for the CIA the whole time. I'm like, look, if she had the plutonium in her <laughs> possession and she was working for the CIA, she's a worse operative they got. Angela Bassett needs to worry about this chick and not Tom Cruise then. But let's not focus on all of that. I think we're all in agreement the plot is an excuse it is not a web to be untangled it gets better from here from this moment on i understand and macquarie did say certain things weren't finalized when they started shooting and they were kind of looking and seeing where the story took them as they filmed but yeah this is messy how did white 
Widow get the plutonium from whom? Who stole the plutonium? It's all nebulous. We can theorize. The movie doesn't tell us. And that is a real disappointment. And I'm sitting there in the theater at this point going, the story's nonsense. (laughs) And it's really bothering me. But it gets better from here. Yeah, as much as I like that jumping out the plane scene and that fight scene, this first act sucks if you're trying to understand this story. I don't think you try to understand it logically like we're talking it out. That's not the point in this movie because, yeah, it's going to get better because it's just going to become a straight up action movie and kind of just drop all that spy stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think there's still something to the scripting. The theme will constantly be Ethan having to protect the innocents. He's going to find out, yeah, the new clause to getting this plutonium. He'll be eventually whisked to White Widow's lair. Yeah, we got it sitting right here. We'll even give you one of the three. But if you want the other two, you have to break out the nemesis you put behind bars. He gets passed around by different countries. They feed him drugs. He tells them what he knows. And so they want him free. Whoever the seller is now, I want him to. And it's for Ethan to figure out how to do that. Ethan is very worried it means coming at the cost of collateral damage. Cops are going to die. Yeah, there's a lot of dreams or just getting inside Ethan's head in this film. And yeah, you see that action scene play out where he has to shoot a cop and then it jumps back to the plan where, yeah, he's trying to strategize and figure out how he's going to get out of this one. I'm kind of pissed at that fake out. I thought that for nuclear bombs and the fact that he has to play evil, the fact that he is posing as John Lark and you draw the line at killing innocents and he has to then remember who he is. I set off smallpox. I have no lines. But... The fact that they do this fake out of killing the cops, that's not a Mission Impossible movie. It's a cheap move. No, they did it last movie. Benji imagined breaking into the place. They've done it before where they have an imagined heist and then walk it back and go, yeah, that won't really work. Oh, that's right. They did it with Benji. It still kind of pissed me off, but it does create a new puzzle. And that's what I like about Mission Impossible films is not just the action, but the puzzle of, all right, how do I do this and not kill all these people when the White Widow is sending me with like a goon squad full of guns. And that's what I appreciate about this film is it's going to constantly come up with how do they get out of the situation? Because I've seen movies before and I'm not a five-year-old. I know the good guys are going to win. I know the bomb's going to be diffused with one second left. But what this film does, even though I know how it's going to end, it creates these obstacles and puzzles like, oh man, this is crazy. How are they going to get out of this one? How is he going to be able to pull off this heist without killing any cops? So I like that even though I know where it's going because I've seen movies before, they do throw up obstacles that get me thinking, go, oh, this is an impossible situation. How do they get out of it? Yeah, not only can they not kill anyone who's a good guy, but then he also has to worry about the fact that Solomon Lane's going to know who he is instantly. And is he going to want to play along and say, yeah, I don't know who this guy is. He's Lark, when in fact he's the man that put me behind bars? Probably not. On top of which, we also know at this point they've revealed a scene at the Eiffel Tower. Sloane meets with her agent Walker and Walker hands over a phone from fake Lark. We saw that phone was cracked in the bathroom scene. The phone he hands over has no crack on it. The information he is giving his boss is slanted to make Ethan Hunt look guilty, and we know that he's behind that. I didn't even notice the phone crack, but Henry Cavill's 
performance here, you'll find all the information you need on this phone. I don't know how you missed that. They pause on that crack screen and he's like trying to turn it on and then he hands over a phone and it's totally clean. I wonder, was this a change in the script when all that can't shave the mustache stuff came out? Because I'm like, okay, this solidifies for me that this is John Lark. He's setting up Ethan Hunt with fake information on the cell phone. Well, why do you think that they insisted on the mustache? I mean, you could say Hitler kind of branded the mustache as a villainous thing. Cavill is kind of copying a alt-right look to me. He looks a lot like their leader, Richard Spencer. The haircut, all of that, and his whole mission, the idea of tearing down the old and putting something new in. I don't want to facial hair shame anyone, but if you just rock a mustache, that kind of singles you out. That's just not a popular look. I think it's coming back. Star-Lord had one. Yeah, he did, and I thought he looked like a 70s porn star with it. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Here, what happened was this was not an affectation. This was not something where they wanted the bad guy to have a mustache. Henry Cavill's previous film, he had a frill bearded mustache. He showed up on set one day. He's like, yeah, I don't want to lose the stash, Chris. What do you think of the stash in my character? And Chris McQuarrie said, sure, go ahead. Keep the mustache. I kind of like that as a look. We're going to tell the viewers you're a villain anyway, so why not have a mustache just to telegraph it? But it was the actor's idea, something he wanted to do, something that makes him look less like Superman. Yes. (laughs) Both in Justice League and here. Yeah. (laughs) But the Justice League thing I want to address, Macquarie came out on that too. They wanted to help Justice League out. And Justice League came and said, can't you CGI on a mustache on Cavill? And the Paramount Bean Runners went... It's going to cost like $9 million to do that. But if you pay the $9 million, we'll stop shooting for a little bit and let you have him shaven. And then we'll come back and start up again. They were going to do that. And then the heads at Paramount were like, you're going to do what? For who? Absolutely freaking not. And they just couldn't CGI a mustache on him because it... In the close-up shots and the type of mustache it is, it would be way too noticeable. They couldn't put a fake one on him. And so it fell to Justice League to take it off. Honestly, if Cavill had to choose between Fallout and Justice League, which one he was going to devote his appearance to, he picked the right movie. Oh, yeah, obviously. This is a far better (laughs) movie than Justice League, no matter what I rank it. And I could also make the argument if Justice League were more organized, they would have had that shot done much, much earlier. They wouldn't have needed it. You mean if they didn't reshoot the whole thing? Yes, exactly. (laughs) If they weren't in such absolute chaos, you get what you get when you're pushing it to the last second. This movie will push it to the last second in the plot. The people that making Justice League actually pushed it to the last second, making the film before it hit theaters. But anyway, it all leads to the idea that at this point, as Ethan is sitting in the cab of this truck full of SWAT teams that are going to kill police officers and looking next to him at his supposed CIA collaborator, we know that this guy is probably going to be traitorous in this moment once the action kicks in. Oh, absolutely. And I felt like it was telling me too early. That's what I'm saying. I feel like they moved things around because it was just known at this point because of Mustache Gate. Also, Macquarie said he wants the audience to be a step ahead of Mm -hmm. the crew. That's the way it plays anyway. Yeah, I felt like they were revealing it too soon or did they think that phone scene didn't just tell everything? No, this was completely intentional. It's a weird beat though that we then have him go back and continue to work with Ethan and sit in that truck with him being like, did Lane really crash a plane just to kill one person? And And about that line, is that a reference to Mission Impossible 2? Because remember, there was that one guy that they wanted, some scientist with the Bolero phone and they killed an 
entire plane in the opening of that movie. You watched it recently. <laughs> yeah, it was always him. Yeah, in five, the syndicate said that they were behind so much. Mm-hmm. This is just telling us, yes, they were behind Bellerophon, which was my favorite part of the entire <laughs> Mission Impossible rewatch was Chimera, Bellerophon, yeah. Dimitri. But- <laughs> But we've actually seen some of these heinous crimes that get talked about here, and the smallpox thing is going to come back at the end. So that's clever writing. I mean, again, I think there's still some good writing here. There's some good things to surprise us, even though we can anticipate that Cavill's bad. And I don't think that's a bad thing to tell us right away that Cavill's bad or right at the beginning of the second act. It does create dramatic tension because I'm like, again... I know how this film's going to end, but getting there is the fun part. And so knowing that, oh, Ethan's working with this guy he's actually trying to catch and maybe he doesn't know it right away. There's some dramatic tension there that really works. And Chris McQuarrie, I haven't seen everything he's done, but I've seen a lot. I think he is a really good writer. I'll always hold up Usual Suspects as his best work, but I think he knows how to tell a story. I think he knows how to direct a film. Even though some of this was muddled, he knows what he's doing with storytelling beats. He just lost the details in the beginning. But this moment, when they decide to break Lane out, is where the movie course corrects. It jettisons a lot of the details. The movie doesn't stop from this point on. Like, it is just pedal to the metal for the rest of the film. All the crap I was trying to figure out is never brought up again. We now (laughs) just have the plutonium is out there. There's a double crosser and you need to free the mastermind villain. Is that the karma police bringing Lane down the road? Because it hit me as I was watching this. Oh my God, he looks exactly like Tom, Tom York. York the okay, thank you. I was getting so confused. I'm like, how did they get Tom York for this? Oh, I wait. Know. Tom York is just so rough looking these days. And so is this guy. And he, yeah, here he is knocked into the river. What an amazing shot. The prisoner van lands in the water sideways. Ethan did this because he doesn't want everyone to die. He used a wonderful little device. He put a camera up so we could see when the cars are coming so he knew exactly when to ram. He must have watched heat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He rams it into the water, but the shot, and it's in the trailer, but until I saw it in context in IMAX, I didn't get how cool it is to see this wall of water because the camera's turned sideways with him. Oh, that's an amazing shot. I just see the water come at Lane and him taking the breath and my fear of drowning anyway that scene that shot is gorgeous yeah this is a great sequence non-stop really the Paris extraction is just amazing on a lot of different visual levels I think it's also amazing because I feel like in this movie more than any other I know that they've been course correcting and making it better with each film but this franchise started with Tom Cruise saying I'm the only one that can do anything at this point it was really nice to see Benji be the one to rescue him and that Luther is there on the boat to work on the whole tracking thing I feel like they use the sense of a team there's a core trio that matters and they're just as valuable Ethan couldn't be Ethan without them And we hadn't seen them. I thought they were left behind because we saw Benji and Luther at the beginning and we know that Ving Rhames wasn't a huge part of four. Mm -mm. And so I kept wondering if this would be the movie they kill Luther. I thought they might kill him at the beginning. I thought they might kill him. (laughs) Yes. But I was upset that Luther and Benji were left behind in the States when Walker and Cruz went out. To see them here is like, surprise, we've been here all along. And I love it. Yeah, my feeling has always been 
Mission Impossible becomes the Tom Cruise show. This is the first time, and I could be wrong, I haven't rewatched the other ones, maybe it was like this in 4 or 5, but I feel like this is the first team one. Like, that first Mission Impossible blew up the team and killed them all, and finally we have a team really back together. He's always used people to help him, but I feel like Tom Cruise could not accomplish this mission without his team, and they're all used and they all get their moment. I think it started really having done the rewatch. It started in 3, but not very much, and it built up in 4, where you had Jeremy Renner as his equal. Mm -hmm. And And then they got rid of Jeremy Renner. Right, there will be no equal. And I also thought, this time, even Walker, there are times, especially in the bathroom fight, where you see... Ethan just gets punched and goes down, whereas Walker keeps going. I think they made it a point to show, in some ways, Walker, with his youth and his vibrance, was outshining Ethan. But Ethan still has the strategy. He doesn't tell Walker what's going on. Nobody knows what's going on. I do love how he hits the gas so hard that all the goons just tumble out of the back of the van. Yes. Yeah, it's a great way. He keeps slamming on that brake, so they're just getting tossed all over the place. And and knowing that they aren't doing sets, they aren't doing CGI, this is really the Arc de Triomphe. They really just stop traffic in Paris and film <laughs> this stuff. This is where the money's going then. They had two hours to do everything. That is Tom Cruise on a motorcycle going full speed with stunt drivers going full speed all around him. No helmet. Jesus. So that he is on that motorcycle because I'm like, wow, this is just a great chase scene. Again, take me back to like some of the Bourne stuff where we got some great car chases. And But yeah, this is Tom Cruise. This is really him. Like he's going to get thrown from that motorcycle at one point. And I'm like, that's got to be fake because they can't fake. damage that head. Here's what Chris McQuarrie said is no shot of Ethan isn't Tom. If they had to do an insert shot of showing Ethan's foot on the gas, Tom Cruise said, that's my foot going on the gas. So I would have thought, without Chris McQuarrie saying that, that the shots from behind, where you don't see Cruise's face, were a stunt double. But what McQuarrie says is, if you see Ethan, you see Tom. And he did most of his own stunts. That crash looked hard. But anything a stunt guy can do and a stunt guy can arrange, Cruz is willing to be that stunt guy. Do you guys think a stunt guy could hit a car and go flying off? Yeah, but they're trained to do that. This is a nearly 60-year-old man doing it. Cruz has been training himself to do it this whole time. Yeah, I actually think that Tom Cruise could be a stuntman for other actors. So, <laughs> like, Wes Bentley could be in an action movie and then get Tom to come in there. So, I don't know if that's real or fake. I know that they say, if we see Ethan, we see Tom. Does he have a death wish? I don't know, but... It's incredible to think that he's riding a motorcycle at that speed with no helmet and no net. It's incredible. I don't like to encourage too much a crazy man doing crazy things because I do think he's really actually probably mentally unbalanced. We're a step away from Tom Cruise and bum fights here. (laughs) But I do feel like, yeah, extraordinary is extraordinary. And what a commitment. I mean, there's a lot that's probably wrong upstairs going on there. But yeah, if you're committing to making an action movie, no one is more committed. Nobody. Nobody wants it more than Tom Cruise, so let's give it to him. All right, hats off. You deserve praise for your level of commitment in this incredible scene. Xenu will not let him fall. Xenu will cushion the blows. Well, that's what I mean. I feel like there are things sending signals to him that make him believe he can't be hurt. Of course, he will be hurt. Yeah, it's the Church of Scientology. 
pumping him full of money. <laughs> yeah, I don't feel good about that part, but whatever. No. Case may be, in the, at least in the movie-wise, he's going to get a little bit of assistance from Benji and Luther. They're going to be there at the exact moment that he's dropping down into the aqueduct. I've never been to Paris. Do they just have giant holes into the sewer covered with nets? There's a lot of bridges. I don't recall seeing those, but they must be there. And Ethan has another moment where he has to relitigate Berlin. Is it right? to focus on the one when there's the many. There's this moment where they've got Solomon now. He's His head's in a bag, so he doesn't know who's got him, but they've got him, they're putting him in a car, and this as happenstance would have it, this French policewoman who's giving out tickets for parking just happens to see them doing this, and he's got to think, do I kill her, or do I allow her to be killed in order for the mission to continue? The theme of the one versus the many, and he still makes the same choice that he made with Luther. I'm not going to let this chick die for our plot. It's a tense moment. At first, I wondered if they were going to try to play a sex joke again because they did the bathroom scene. I'm like, are they going to say Solomon's the gimp? What's going to happen here? And it's because Ving Rhames is there. I think I have gimp on the mind. But she gets shot by some of who I assume to be the White Widow's gunmen or something who just see a cop and shoot and Ethan takes them all out. No, I think those are the apostles. Those are the apostles. Oh, God. What are the apostles doing here? Yeah, I just assumed they were White Widow's henchmen. And White Widow's going to complain that some of her men were killed, she presumes, by Ilsa, so she wants Ilsa later. Yeah, she says four of her men were killed, yeah. and there are four men killed here. She has a brother named Zola, and he's later the one following Ilsa. So, okay, I thought those were her men, but you're right. They could all be her men. Who knows? Who cares? Moving on. Let's get to Ilsa, because she's here <laughs> firing guns, too. And I wish... She hadn't worn the helmet. I wish she'd gone Tom Cruise and not worn the motorcycle helmet because it's like they're playing with her identity. And when she pulls up the visor, you see so little of her face. My mind is going, it's obviously a female. You can see the body shape on the bike. I have no question that it's female. But is it Ilsa? Is it the White Widow? Who is on the bike and who is she trying to kill? I just assumed it was Ilsa because this actress I don't really know. But yeah, not a face I recognize instantly, but I just assume that's who it is because she keeps popping up for no reason, just having information every now and then. Yeah, I mean, I thought she was a big deal in Rogue Nation. I really thought... In Rogue Nation, she was. She had a lot of chemistry with Cruz and the fact that she's back in it with her own agenda yet again. She sometimes has an alliance with the IMF, but many times she has to follow her own handlers and it's been implied that she wants to escape them, that she's going to do this job to escape him. She's not shooting Solomon Lane out of revenge. She's shooting him because that will get her freedom. Yeah, it's the only thing that will clear her with MI6 because they believe she may be a double agent. So this is what she has to do to convince them she's not. Right. I love that she shoots him and they're so convinced that he's dead that they take the hoodie off. They're like, did she get him in the face? <laughs> it's just like in the neck. And I love the way that the actor, Sean Harris, plays it. No facial reaction to being shot in the neck. No facial reaction to recognizing that Ethan is the handler. No line of dialogue. He just sits. Sits there and quietly bleeds until finally he was like, 
that was Ilsa. (laughs) It's just a great moment for Sean Harris. That was the second time I jumped. I'm like, did they just break him out to shoot him in the head? And it's kind of a cheat again, because that looks like a perfect headshot, and he slumps down. I saw a bloody ear, so I didn't know if she grazed the head, but she missed. She's a good shot, but she's no Ethan, and Ethan has to make the choice of, well, I can't kill her. We already know his ethics are that I'm not going to kill this agent to get away, but can I run her over and not hurt her too bad? Yeah. And he does. I was surprised by that. And I thought it might be trying to kill her. But he had to, at that point, kill or be killed. She is an enemy agent at this point. MI6 wants this guy dead because he has secrets that he can reveal about MI6. He, in his brain, is so much information, it's as dangerous as the knocklist. There's the whole issue that I'm talking about. Like, countries have to think nationalistically. Even if we have friendships with other countries, we don't want them to know our most private stuff. This guy is a liability, not because of what he's done in the past, but because that he worked for us and could tell them how we operate in their parts of the world. But eventually they get him to some kind of safe house. And I really like the tech here. This one's kind of lighter on gadgets. Yeah, I noticed that. They do have a drone that's in place that will fly away the tracker as soon as Luther extracts it. That was a cool moment. But the fact is that was a real drone. I mean, you can go to Best Buy and buy one of those. So it didn't feel fantastical the way the 3D printer of the Darkman masks always did. And this gives a monologue and talk about the fallout of good intentions and how Ethan's plan or that he should question his mission. He's always so eager to accept a mission. Maybe you should look at the people that are telling you what to do. Maybe you should think that the syndicate has a point by tearing down the old guard. I noticed this when Ethan was getting his mission at the very beginning. If you so choose, you know, you have to choose to accept it. And I did think, I'm like, man, why does he always take these missions? These are crazy, impossible missions. And yeah, Lane is going to call it out. Why do you always accept these? Well, that's because it's the trope ever since the TV series. Your mission, if you choose to accept it. Yeah, but if you want to have a character moment, I think it is something you bring up. Why is he so obsessed with taking every mission here when they are so crazy? I agree, and that's in the trailer, and that's another way I thought the trailer was misleading me, like he had chosen to accept a bad mission or something that didn't happen. And it's topical. Again, the choice to go with Brexit, the choice to go with Trump, is a large number of people saying we want to go a different way. We are not willing to go the direction that we've been headed. And now this is where it's introduced, because Ilsa has involved herself in the plot, this is where it's introduced that now White Widow has another clause. Okay, you got the guy, and you got the money, but we also want the girl. Come to London, and we'll have a trade. And this is probably, again, me just going, Lark saying, we can't have MI6 out to kill this guy, so we now want her. Your mission, if you choose to accept it, it comes in right here. What if Ethan had gone, no, all right, you keep the plutonium. (laughs) I mean, we got Solomon. You can keep the plutonium because apparently Lark is playing Ethan for all of this. Lark has two plutonium balls now. He would still have two plutonium balls. Yeah, they got a down payment of one of the plutoniums. Yeah, but he chooses to at least try to decide what to do with the Ilsa situation. And indeed, the CIA is ready to close up shop. They have contacted IMF Secretary Alec Baldwin Hunley and just said, go see what's going on here. Do not let this deal go forward. And Hunley's kind of embarrassed to find out that, yeah, Ethan did break the guy out. Maybe there were no casualties, but you just don't want to break a guy out of prison that you put in prison. And... 
Hunley's pulling a scam here, too. I mean, it's a step away from an Alec Baldwin mask, the way he's trying to talk Ethan down and say, Ethan, we know you are really Lark. And even though this makes no freaking sense at all, if you've worked with Ethan, you don't think that this could ever be a guy. He has stopped too many of plans, including Solomon himself, to now say, you were working with Solomon all along is just too freaking crazy. So I'm glad to see Hunley is smarter than that and actually is got a phone line open to Angela Bassett so that she can hear it all when it comes out that it's Walker. They did get me, though. We see... Benji, he's making a mask of Lane because they're going to turn him in. I do like love Simon Pegg's acting here. He's just like, what if they try to kill me? And Chris is just like, I- I'm working on the plan for that. And I did like Benji being like, why does it have to be me? And Ving's kind of like pointing yes. at himself and like, I'm not built like Solomon. <laughs> they did get me with this fake out. They end up taking the real Lane and leaving Benji behind so he could hear Lark monologue and, and reveal himself as Lark. Yeah, it is a good fake out. It makes me like the heads of state. Again, this is a movie that's saying we should tear down the old guard because they're not smart enough to lead us. Actually, they're pretty smart. Angela Bassett and Alec Baldwin have suspicion. Yeah, they've looked critically at Ethan, who's completely innocent. We know Tom Cruise would never do harm, but they're also suspicious of Walker at this point. So they just need a confession. They need Benji to put on a latex mask and see what this guy is going to say to Solomon Lane in private. And they get one. You also get the sense Lark is a little bit disappointed that Lane is not as idealistic. That Solomon is really, everything is about getting revenge on Ethan. I think he says as much. I just want Ethan to pay for his arrogance. But for Lark, there's this manifesto. We heard a little bit of it. It sounds like crap, but mostly (laughs) all manifestos sound like crap. I mean, yeah, you need an editor. I'm just going to put that out there. You always need an editor. But I do think that for him, setting off those bombs, there's something that he believes about peace coming out of chaos. He's Ozymandias from Watchmen. Let's create a big world disaster and everyone will come together in peace. Exactly. And so the interesting take here is that with the two bombs that they have, they're going to target an area that will have no impact on America. I think this is very fascinating at a time when we're hearing America first, America only, the fact that we've got to care about bombs that are going to hurt Pakistan, India, and China. No impact on America, but a huge impact on a huge part of the population of the world. Yeah, I think that is the point. Like, America's this tiny little thing. If we go after India and China and Pakistan, I mean, there's billions of people there. And billions of ticket buyers do not (laughs) discount the global appeal of putting China in danger. It's not a reminder to the American audience. It's a capitulation to the global audience. If this is not saying anything to the American audience, it's making sure they keep the Chinese dollars coming in. Oh, yeah. And no doubt there's lots of ticket buyers that are going, oh, my God, they're going to poison (laughs) the well. But I'm just saying in my theater, it might be a moment of pause to go, oh, is that all that's going to get hurt? Well, you know. Is that all? Just a few billion people. Look at social media these days. I wonder how much people care. No, I get what you're saying. But I think it's an interesting debate. Of course, Lark has to get away. He has a SWAT team at the ready for some reason. He knew this was going to happen, even though he didn't know he was being tricked. No, this is the Winter Soldier. Even though it's felt like a Christopher Nolan film this far, the filming, the music, I was really getting a Dark Knight vibe. But all of a sudden, this is Hail Hydra. There were 
syndicate agents all in the CIA and Lark was the head of them. And so when Lark gives the order, the CIA troops turn and kill the ones who aren't in Hydra. Yeah. It's not every CIA troop. It's just some of them. And yeah, he says go and they turn their guns on the other agents and take them all out. It was very the climax of Winter Soldier to me to see, oh, they've infiltrated the CIA so deeply. Right. And we see Walker slash Lark. He takes out Hunley, Alec Baldwin. I kept waiting for him to come back. I mean, he gets stabbed. I would hope if Lark is as badass as he says he is, he would do a a good stabbing where he kills him. But I'm like, it's Alec Baldwin. He's got to come back in the next one. But we don't see him again. It's a sad thing because I think this was actually, for this franchise, Alex Baldwin's best moment when, you know, he pretends to get knocked out with a trank and then comes back and he's like, you know what? I can see why you guys like doing this. This is actually fun. I'm like, yeah, it'll be fun to watch him get in on missions. I don't think so. I do think they killed him. And I think the point of this was here was another moment where Ethan had to look at the individual or the greater good. And it looked like Ethan wasn't going to run. It took Alec Baldwin to say, go be you, go chase down the bad guy. Don't worry about me. There's nothing you can do. Yeah, there's a nice moment earlier where Hunley tells Ethan that he likes him because he will think of the one and the millions. And we see that reversal here where he's saying, don't worry about me. Go save the millions. And Ethan's not a medic. There's nothing that could be done anyway. Benji and Luther could get him to a hospital as fast as anybody. Also, I'm disappointed because I liked Alec Baldwin in Rogue Nation, the way he came around from wanting the IMF disbanded to being the secretary of the IMF. I wonder, though, if Baldwin's schedule was like, you know, I don't want to do a lot of these. I don't want to have to be obligated for this. And so they replaced him with Angela Bassett in this one. Yeah, I don't know that Angela will flip and leave the CIA for IMF, but I totally applaud that move. I think she's great. I think she'd be a great boss. I just wish she'd stuck around a couple more movies, because when they kill Judy Dench in the James Bond series and replace her, it's a big moment. We now see the M we saw in other movies. Here, you could have kept Alec Baldwin around a couple more movies, and it would have been a much bigger impact to see him replaced. It's the first time we liked him, right? Actually, in the scene, in the moment of his death, is the only time that I'm like, hey, you're part of the team. I like you. Thanks for being here. So yeah, I'd feel a loss in that sense, but it's gone too soon. For sure. Absolutely. It felt like they wanted to kill someone and they were just looking at like, who can we kill? Uh, We're not going to kill Simon Pegg and Vin, you've been in all of them. Well, will they kill Julia? That's what everything is predicated on now. We have this awesome foot chase, the one that broke Cruz's ankle in which he is going to try and track down Walker as he meets a helicopter rendezvous. There's a lot of humor here. We got Benji because they have trackers in him and he's following him along. And yeah, I love that he had the auto lock on the screen he's got to flip it over and then it's in 2d mode and he realizes he's on a roof and yeah just that whole office scene where he's got to break the window and jump out out of it to try to catch lark it's funny stuff my favorite laugh the the biggest moment is all those office workers are watching him as he's about to jump out the window and there's one lady in the back that nods and is like yeah do it (laughs) yes i I noticed that (laughs) it's like she's suicidal or something i didn't see that it's great but i liked the woman who was so oblivious she had her earbuds in and you didn't see tom cruise dangling outside her window she was rocking out but yeah it's fun to see Ethan be human and to be like, I'm about to jump out of a window here. I could break my ankle or something. So give me a minute. And when Benji's just like, why is he running in circles when he's going up those stairs? But so well shot. I'm just, I'm invigorated by the chase, but I'm also impressed 
by the visuals of what's going on here. It's not just point the camera at the action and go. This is so well choreographed between man and camera that this is good. And yeah, when he makes that landing, he keeps leaping roof to roof. And I'm like, is that where he broke the ankle? Oh, he's limping there. He might have broken the ankle. Oh, you you can tell where he broke that ankle. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when he does, you know it. I've actually seen he did a talk show interview where they actually slowed it down and he just focused on the foot. And the way it bends is extraordinary. <laughs> yeah, I was watching for it. But you're right, Arnie, the, the way this is shot, the, the score, again, I don't know how much of this is new score, but I felt there's a lot of like percussive score in this, which, again, it mimics the heartbeat and it just gets you pumped and yeah i know there's story problems i don't really understand the apostles i just know we got to get some plutonium and henry cavill is a bad guy and all this action it's pushing those story problems to the side i understand it enough to just get into all this action and it ends at the tate museum with him showing a picture of julia and saying basically blackmailing ethan here's the one person you may put everyone in jeopardy for it really does hit the themes of this uh, you know and there i agree with you Stuart. you know the theme of looking inward versus looking outward ethan looked inward when he saved luther in the end though it's kind of a cheat he doesn't have to make a choice. In order to save yeah. the one, he has to save the many. Yeah, that's exactly right. Lark was going to go after his wife no matter what. Mm-hmm. And Ethan didn't catch the helicopter. If he could have jumped on that helicopter, he would have. It's not like he backed down. I just don't know where he gets his stamina from. Like, I guess it really is about just using those hands to cut that wind when you're running. Chop that air. <laughs> And I'm also going to credit this movie for having the stamina to go all the way. Usually by this point, I'm pretty fatigued. I'm wanting the movie to wrap up. This is the longest Mission Impossible movie. I did not feel the length of this film at all. Uh Uh-uh. And I think the climax just kept the momentum going. I was not like, come on, guys, get done with it. They're going to take 15 minutes that probably is actually 30 minutes to stop these bombs. And I'm loving every second of it. Agreed. And it is two and a half hours, but... I didn't feel the length at the time. I checked my watch a couple of times. Again, during the confusing part, I'm like, wow, we're only 20 minutes in. Yeah, that first act is tough because it is so confusing. But once you get past that. Once Lane enters the picture, really, is where this movie, it hits the accelerator, never stops, and just a fun ride to use that cliche. And yeah, here Lane and Lark get away, but they know where they're going. They're going to Kashmir. It's a northern province of India. It has this river valley that is very important to millions. A third of the world's population getting hydrated. So yeah, this is a good target if you're trying to do mass casualty. It was also something where Macquarie had to look and say, okay, where are we going to be allowed to do these helicopter stunts? They won't let us do them in the States. They won't let us do them in London. Finally, New Zealand's like, yeah, you can let Tom Cruise fly a helicopter Uh, all around here. I noticed they got a grant from New Zealand. (laughs) (laughs) They are the home of the extreme. I believe the bungee cord comes from New Zealand. Like that makes sense of anyone in the world crazy enough to sanction what they're going to do here. Yeah, New Zealand would be the one. (laughs) Yeah, especially after meeting Korg and Taika Waititi. It's like, yeah, those guys are down for whatever. And so then they had to look at the terrain that they could fly over in New Zealand and be like, What does this look like to you? We're not going to have him try to bomb New Zealand. So where can we have him try to bomb? And so, yeah, they they chose Kashmir. But it does make sense 
from a threat standpoint too but yeah it, when he's flying over these various terrains he's they're not actually filming there yeah and again i think bringing julia into this normally i kind of don't even care i, I forget that he has a wife and when she comes back it feels weird but this is actually kind of lovely the way that she comes back into this I thought this was a pretty emotional moment when she's like introducing Ethan to her new husband and she's like, oh, this is a doctor I know. And he's just here for vacation. He's like work. And she just gets this look on her face. Like I I thought it was a nice little moment. Yeah, I like this reunion. I like that they're acknowledging what J.J. did. J.J.'s been a producer of all these. We've seen his bad robot at the start of each of the Mission Impossible films since he got involved. But I felt like she was as ignored in part five as Jeremy Renner was ignored here. Mm -hmm. And so I'm glad that we get from Luther telling Ilsa the story of what really happened. Because we saw in part three, Ethan was ready to retire. He was going to be the top gun of IMF. He was going to be training, not going on missions. And we saw in part three that she was captured, taken hostage to hurt Ethan And we saw at the beginning of part four, Jeremy Renner talks about her death, how he was shadowing them, and she was killed under his watch. What we're told here is, well, they were attacked. We knew Julia wasn't killed at the end of part four, but it was that attack that made Ethan realize they cannot be together because she will always be under attack. She's still always under attack, but she's not as big of a target because she's not with him. She has to live a ghost life herself, moving country to country, doing Doctors Without Borders almost nonstop, but... They did divorce, and he still loves her, though. And it is Lark who brought her to this place. She talks about this guardian angel, and they've been funded. She had to come here personally to help these people with their smallpox outbreak. And we got that line earlier when Ethan's underneath this elevator, and there's this funny moment where Lark looks down, and it's a great floor, not a solid floor, and he could have just shot Ethan there. And that's when he shows the picture of Julia and says, I'm her guardian angel. I'm like, does he have her hostage? When she says a guardian angel funded this, it makes sense. Yeah, Lane is the opposite of Ethan. He's the perfect foil for him because Ethan will protect the one even at the risk of many. And Lane will kill the many to get to the one that matters. All he really wanted to die when he gave the smallpox out was Julia. That's incredible to think about. If I kill an entire village, I can bring this humanitarian here who's the wife of my nemesis, and then he'll know that she's dead. And I've kept him alive. I mean, we'll even see that he lets him get to the chopper for this final, that he doesn't scream, hey, get that guy. Lane sees his nemesis there and loves it because he believes he set a bomb trap so perfect, there's no way this impossible mission team can stop it. And this is one of the fun things is when they describe the impossible task that they're going to have to do. And you, you know, with the knock list getting into the building and you can't touch the floor here, you have these two nukes. You can't disarm them because it will send a signal to the other one like in a tenth of a second. So it will blow up and you got to pull the key from the detonator first, but only after it's been the timer started. Like it, it's so convoluted, but that is part of the fun of these Mission Impossible films is impossible task. How are they going to do this? And it's one of the first times I felt like they faced an impossible possible challenge you know i joked with my sister last night she's in town and i had to go she goes why do you have to leave so early i said i have to go see a movie and my mom says which movie i go mission impossible six but they've done the past five i'm wondering how impossible these missions really (laughs) are (laughs) then they give me this one i'm like 
all right, damn, I do not see a way out of this. He's in a helicopter. You're having a helicopter chase. All he has to do is stay off the ground, right? You can't leap from a helicopter to a helicopter. He can barely get on the first helicopter. It's like an Indiana Jones moment. You know, when Indiana Jones and Raiders is under the truck with the Nazis, and then he pulls himself up the side. Ethan has to grab onto, they're taking supplies. I guess they think that they're actually leaving the medical base. Yeah, I was wondering what that stuff was, yeah. They do say they're packing up this medical base, they're done, so I guess, yeah, these are supplies they're taking. It seems like a convenient plot device, so Ethan could get on this helicopter, but you telling me there's no green screen here? That's what I'm told, and in fact, I saw a behind-the-scenes featurette where they were filming this, and Tom Cruise was way up in the air, and we're seeing the director down on the ground, and all of a sudden comes through the radio, we lost Tom, and everybody's just like... (laughs) Oh, shit. And then they're like, oh, wait, he's on. He's, he caught the rope. He caught the rope. He's OK. <laughs> he was really up there and it was a thin harness preventing him between life and death. And he hit that payload and they're all like, yeah, we knew he had a harness so he wouldn't fall to his death. But none of us took into account how hard he was going <laughs> to hit those bags. Yeah. If there is no green screen here and it doesn't look like it, I mean, this looks all real. It, it is amazing. The stunt work that I guess Tom Cruise is doing himself. The thing is, keep in mind, Tom Cruise is doing stunt work. They're still doing it like stunt work. When he's getting in that helicopter and pushing people out of them, I don't think he's pushing people at a thousand feet. I think he's doing that on a stage somewhere like anything would. But when he's dangling from the ropes and doing the falls, that's all up there. Yeah. I don't know if he needed to go to that extreme. Maybe some of that, you know, (laughs) method acting, which this is, I guess, an extreme form of sometimes can feel very indulgent. Like you don't have to be the person to play the person. I'm not of that opinion. You say Daniel Day-Lewis doesn't have to be Lincoln for like two years (laughs) to play the role. Yeah, it can look absurd sometimes. I just think of Lawrence Olivier and Dustin Hoffman on Marathon Man. Yeah, I mean, there are many ways to act, and the best actors aren't necessarily method actors. They're just the most extreme. But however he got it, this stuff is really great. I think this climax is incredibly satisfying for everyone, not just for the high jinx that Cruz is doing dangling off helicopters, but I just love the fact that Luther has been left behind at the radio tower with a, a woman that has never cut bomb wires before, and they're having- But she's a doctor. She knows how to cut <laughs> delicate organs and all that. Sure, she can be delicate, but anyone can cut the wrong wire. I mean, they do play it like, yeah, she's got delicate hands, but he's like, cut the red wire in my right hand. No, my right hand. <laughs> like, they do make it feel very complicated and tense. Then she, he says, turn this counterclockwise. And I'm like, is counterclockwise the same for both of them there? Or yeah. is he screwing that up too? <laughs> and of course, you know, Benji's out there looking for the other one. He is the perfect physical match for the Solomon Lane. Yeah, I'm not sure who would win that fight if they start fighting you throw ilsa in there but she's tied to a chair for half of it you know they just keep it going where all the characters are equally involved they all have something to do and it is all going to come down right to the wire and ilsa has to make a choice too mission or man the entire time she has been devoted to her mission for mi6 because they won't let her go until she does it and she's been intently focused on killing lane nukes are about to go off Lane will be killed, but she still wants to put a bullet in him. But Benji gets a noose around his neck and is being choked. She makes a choice to 
kick him a box so he can stand and not choke to death versus taking the kill shot. This is a very intense scene for me. Yeah, because I like Simon Pegg, just an actor I like. So to see him hanging there, that box is going to get moved. I mean, he's hanging. He's trying to cut himself down with a broken bottle that he has to, you know, I think he hands it back to Ilsa so she could get the one up on Lane. And it looks like he's dead at one point. And then, yeah, Ilsa, who made the choice of going to her mission first before helping the individual, I guess she's able to have it both ways, just like Ethan and save Benji anyway. But she also makes the choice not to kill. Her mission was assassination. She hogties him. Yeah. But I do feel like Cruz gets the best stuff. I mean, he is the star. You could say they're a team. They're all equally important. But we know who the main attraction is. And he is going to make sure that Henry Cavill knows his place. You might call yourself Superman, but I'm Superman. And I'm going to disfigure you. I'm going to, like, take hot oil and spray it in your face and melt your pretty face off. There's a helicopter dogfight. And look, I don't watch a lot of, like, war movies or something. I don't know how often I've seen a helicopter dogfight. I've seen airplane ones. I have an uncle who was a, a copter pilot in Vietnam and very difficult. So I'm like, when he's spitting out of control, I'm like, oh, I hope Ethan has taken some good helicopter lessons because th- this is almost impossible get out of if you're an amateur it, it stretches belief for me ethan gets in the helicopter and goes all right here's an altimeter i've never flown one of these before when in fact i've seen the behind the scenes i know tom cruise has flown one ethan has never met a vehicle he couldn't drive or fly right. <laughs> i would have been perfectly fine skipping the is this the fuel meter uh this is going up you know i could have skipped all of that you just have him know how to fly it exactly but again Tom Cruise flew this helicopter, including in that spin at the end that only really experienced helicopter pilots can do. They had cameras mounted, and he not only has to do stunts, keep this in mind, he also has to act. He has to fly a helicopter in a downward spin as if it's about to crash while saying lines that Luther's going to hear back at the base. He has all of this to do and did it himself. I asked Chris McQuarrie on Twitter because I had to know. He has not yet answered. I have to know, Tom wasn't in the helicopter when it crashed, right? How the hell did you crash the helicopters? Yeah, that stuff's good. This looks great. This looks very physical when these copters crash and they're rolling down this cliff. That stuff, yeah, they get kind of caught up in the rock face at one point. I just, that cavalry himself the way he goes out he just gets this big old hook in the face that just yanks him out it's awesome i did like henry cavill's melted face he reminded me again of two-face from nolan i wondered if he was gonna live and like be coming back and yeah be like a two-face character not with that hook not with that hook no no not with the hook he's not once that hook goes in his head he is not coming back i earlier thought tom cruise must have just made fun of the nerds in gym class because when he was on that payload, he climbs that rope like nobody's business. And it just did remind me of gym class having to scale the rope. But then he does have to go to the rock climbing. We saw that in one of them. That was the opening for like two, right? I started singing Aiko Aiko in my head. He realizes, (laughs) hey, this Henry Cavill guy needs a rope. I don't need no stinking rope. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to tug on the rope and make Cavill fall. And then I'm just going to do my freeform rock climbing that I always do as the clock ticks down to one every movie has to do it right you can't ever stop it with like 30 seconds to go well they make that a joke here they're like we gotta just hope that ethan's gonna pull that key out so we could cut the wires and benji wants to do it on two and luther's like no we're gonna do it on you know one why do we always gotta wait till one i i like this back and forth and i like that we don't actually see ethan like pull the key out it is again i know how this movie's gonna end but i like this tension where they just cut it and it goes to white and then we see ethan hanging on that cliff with that key in his hand. 
maybe it's revealing my emotional state these days uh, when I look at the world, but I felt an emotional tug when he is revived by the husband of his wife that he'd want to be with. And she tells him, I like my life of humanitarianism. I like the fact I would have never done it. If we were together, I would have only focused on you and we would have stayed in America. But now I go around the world and helping people. And I love that life. And thank you for giving it to me. Again, I think that's just a great message for the world right now. I think it's a great ending for this character arc. It frees Cruz up so that now, yeah, now Ethan can pursue Ilsa. It's so perfect in so many ways. But I also find it a little bit egotistical that only Ethan can save the world. The reason also that they had to divorce was because when things went bad, she felt guilty because she had Ethan at home. Well, if Ethan was out there, that might not have happened. And it's like, Someday he's going to die. What's going to happen then? You better hope. They're going to bring Jeremy Renner in finally. (laughs) (laughs) I would have rather had Ethan training the next generation of Ethans so that we could have many people saving the world rather than just take this one Superman out on a mission. It is very much the Superman Spider-Man dilemma, right? How much do I get to have a personal life or how much do I have to save the world? Only it's Ethan. I'm going to predict they're going to bring in The Rock. They always bring in The Rock, right? (laughs) He's going to take over the team when Ethan dies. After this year, he needs a movie franchise. (laughs) Yeah, he ain't going to be saving no more skyscrapers. Yeah, they they can only bring in The Rock if they're going to replace Luther with... Kevin Hart. <laughs> it seems when they team up, their f- films are successful. I smell a spinoff. <laughs> they did do Central Intelligence. They could just wrap that into the Mission Impossible universe. Or maybe he can be in the Meg, too. Because <laughs> he and Statham, they're going to try that Fast and Furious without Vin Diesel. Yes, and they're going to bring White Widow with them. She's in the film. And then the end, we get the CIA director, Angela Bassett, coming in and being like, You know, you IMF people are all right. I was wrong about you. Sometimes we do need the person who thinks of the one. Yeah, and sometimes we need to have an international mindset. That's really what she's saying there. That does feel like, because it's all voiceover, yeah, maybe with a year into our current political era, because they had to delay this, that they could do some like new voiceover. Because, it, yeah, it does feel almost tacked on, but a little moralistic. But I like what they're saying, so I'll go with it. All right, so Jacob Stewart... Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to tell us whether you recommend Mission Impossible Fallout. Jacob. Oh, so I could just not accept it and I could be done, go back to bed? Yeah. <laughs> it's early Saturday morning my time. No, I'll accept it. Look, there's story problems here. I think these problems are probably in every installment of Mission Impossible and probably a lot of spy films, like a lot of James Bond films, where you just get muddled when you have to have double and triple and quadruple crosses. It just gets confusing. And when you really delve into it, it probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But once the second act really kicks into this film, there's some fun action stuff before that. But once this movie gets going, it does not stop. I am adrenalized the whole time. I am into this. I am shocked that this is two and a half hours. It didn't feel like that at all. Again, the story is what it is. I understood enough of it to be able to follow along and be excited by all the action. And this is definitely one of the best action films I've seen. I don't know. I'd I'd have to stat and look at all the action films I've seen in the last decade, but I'll say the last decade, one of the best, probably top 10. Definitely. Like it is a great action film. Like I don't remember the last time, maybe Mad Max Fury Road, where just 
watching stunts and action go on got me this excited. And I've been skeptical of most of these Mission Impossible films. I'm like, going into this one, I'm like, oh, I got to see another Mission Impossible. Boring. But no, I walked out of this one excited. I really enjoyed this one. This is a strong recommend. Stuart. Agreed on that. Strong recommend. It is impossible to dismiss Tom Cruise. That is the thing that I have come to realize. I used to believe that, hey, this franchise doesn't need him. He was a star once. He's clinging on to this because all his other meal tickets have dried up. And I think there's some truth to that. But I also think that he makes it better. His enthusiasm and his desire to push things to the limit. I don't think the director, I don't think the people involved, the supporting actors would go to the places that they go to in this film were he not the one carrying the baton and saying, follow me. This is Cruz franchise. I don't know what it would look like without him. The end of this, they swap trunks and we have the idea that Solomon could live and he could be the villain in the next one or the next several. I'm not sure about that, but I know Mission Impossible 7, if he survives the filming of it, Cruz will be back for it and we're lucky to have him in that. I don't know that he works in anything else. Again, I've seen the other films, Mummy, American Made, don't do any more southern accents <laughs> don't try to act this works the best for you because it is you ethan hunt is you it is the screen embodiment of all you want to achieve in life and so it just it's a perfect matchup and yeah this is the strongest mission impossible mission just from the standpoint of a visual wow i had a great time watching it i think everyone will yeah just think if you could get a studio to pay 80 million for you to live out your midlife crisis mm, that'd be awesome <laughs> I'll jump onto a helicopter for 80 million. Well, no, they're paying the 80 million so you can jump onto the helicopter, not paying you 80 million. Right. Whatever Tom Cruise's salary is, I'll take that to jump on a helicopter. I'll even do it without a harness, <laughs> just to up it. <laughs> so you just want to leave that money to your family. Right. Write a note before you go. <laughs> yeah. Take care of them. <laughs> Write a manifesto before you do that stuff. Yes. <laughs> but no, I know so many people a little bit older than me who are like, I'm going skydiving for the first time. It's like they're all in their late 40s. They're all jumping out of airplanes mm -hmm. and they're saving up for it because it's a few thousand dollars. And I'm like, well, here's Tom Cruise. He's having his and he's doing it large. He's got Paramount footing the entire bill. But I have said every Mission Impossible film got better than the one before. And this is a high bar now. It's like, can you keep it coming? I still think that the differences between four and five, they were close to each other but five was a bit better with all the stunts and everything here i really worried during that first hour this was going to be a real step down it had the story problems at the beginning that part one had throughout this is just too convoluted there's too much story but not enough plot there was so much of name dropping and apostles and white widow all of it when i saw the bathroom fight that alone and the tone it had had the again I called it a Christopher Nolan feeling movie. That's not a bad thing. When I'm comparing it to The Dark Knight, that is a very good thing. I realize now that movie's 10 years old and I'm really old, but it's still one of the best superhero films of all time and one of the best action films of all time. I felt this was really getting up there, but the plot was just falling apart on me. And then when they streamline it and they just don't care about all the things they said and you're just chasing Henry Cavill and Lane and some nukes, I was able to put that all aside. 
I think it's just about on par with the last one, but the stunts push it slightly higher. So yes, the stair-stepping of Mission Impossibles continue. This is the best one they've done. I do think, unlike what Christopher McQuarrie says, C5 first, because you would be confused about all of this. Yeah, you need to. I felt a little bit lost. Yeah, Solomon Lane... Ilsa, I think you could roll with. Solomon Lane, though, to understand the weight of why we're doing what we're doing and who the syndicate is, i definitely say rent five, watch it digitally, something, and then go see six. It is the best action film we've reviewed this summer. Oh, easily. Yeah. So three for three. That's good. I agree. I don't know how they'll top themselves. I know they'll try. I also asked Christopher McQuarrie, are you just going to strap him to the space shuttle next time and launch it? (laughs) Is that where we're at with Tom Cruise? No doubt. I'm going to make that prediction. They will go to space. They will literally go to space because they're doing that now. They're launching. We're going to moonraker this thing. He will have an action scene in actual zero gravity up in space. He will do that. Actually filmed. He did it in The Mummy. That was all practical stunts in The Mummy with that airplane falling. Oh, yeah. That was a good sequence. That's the only reason to see The Mummy. (laughs) Oh, that was a great scene. And then the movie fell to shit right as the plane crashed. But that is a great scene. And Tom Cruise did his own stunts there, too. Yeah. I don't pretend to know how they'll keep it going. And again, yeah, at some point, maybe they'll become lesser or I'll be less engaged. But I think that they can keep up a certain level of quality. They have a good team going, both on screen and behind. Keep it as intact as you want. Bring in new elements. I do think that you you will need a cavil or something to play off next time, not just Solomon Lane. But yeah, they got something good going here. And I look forward to Mission Impossible 7 more than I've ever looked forward to any previous Mission Impossible film. Yeah, I think that it'll probably be three years from now. We seem to be on that schedule. And that seems to be almost the perfect schedule for sequels. Because two, you always hear the stories. We were rushed. We didn't get the story in place. We had to do it too hurried. But four, and people start to forget the impact of the first one wears off. So I'm imagining, yeah, 2021, we'll see Tom Cruise doing more crazy stuff as he nears 60. That may be a time for him to go to space without a helmet or something. Mm-hmm. And we'll see him next year. We'll, we'll review Top Gun Maverick. Oh, okay. We will? Yeah. The preview? <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> Before we did. <laughs> We've always said sometime we need to work Top Gun in the schedule. You've always said. Hey, how can I turn down a movie directed by the man who did Taco Bell Web of Fries? (laughs) (laughs) Can't be Tony Scott. That's all I know. Yeah. I'm kind of glad it's not Ridley Scott if you've seen his last few films. We've reviewed them. Yeah, I know. Exactly. (laughs) But as for what we're seeing next... Well, two movies opened this weekend. There was Mission Impossible, which was expected to open number one at the box office, going to be Top Cruise's biggest opening ever, Mission Impossible's biggest opening ever, by a little. And coming in second place at the box office this weekend, DC, the dark DC universe. <laughs> Fuck Batman. Yeah, it's DC. I wouldn't use the word dark. I thought it was SpongeBob. Looked a little Powerpuff Girls. I'm doing a lot of research to understand what Teen Titans Go are so I can know why we're going to the movies to see them. I'm glad you're doing that research. I tried watching an episode and you know those pixie sticks that are just pure sugar in a straw you inhale? Mm. I think I'd need like a case of those to have the energy level to do that. No, you just need a seven-year-old that loves that show like she 
has watched every episode. She has told me every detail. Like, I don't need Wiki for this one. I've got a daughter that loves Teen Titans Go. Great. Then I don't have to go looking for my imaginary kids. Yes. I will take a child to it so you don't need to get your imaginary ones. Oh, good. You don't have to troll through the sewer. Mm. <laughs> but we'll see. We may. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to like this thing, but that's what we're covering next week. And then it's back to video games with Warcraft and Tekken. And then, Uvabool, I mean... Yeah, it'll be great. In the meantime, if you want to hear about good movies, well, <laughs> this Friday we're continuing the Al Pacino retrospective. I don't remember what this Friday is. Well, you said talk about good movies, Dick but Tracy. we're reviewing Dick Tracy. Oh, okay, Dick Tracy? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. You guys are always showing your hand on that one. I don't know why you're revealing so much you, of your hatred. You know what? I haven't seen Dick Tracy since 1990 in theaters. My memories aren't good, but I will go into this with an open mind. Yeah, I never remember not liking it. I just remember it not being Tim Burton Batman and everyone being disappointed. No one wanted to wear the shirt. That's what I remember. I remember being really let down in theaters, especially since I'd cut out a magazine ad to buy a Dick Tracy watch out of Starlog, and I was getting so hyped for Dick Tracy, I was ready to send in that $17.95. Yes. And then I came out of the theater and I literally threw that in the garbage. Yes, I remember being hyped for a movie that we all decided Decided we didn't really feel that hyped about. Yeah, Batman it wasn't. Yes, but it got Al Pacino an Oscar nomination, and it's part of our gangster <laughs> retrospective. <laughs> that just tells me he doesn't deserve Scent of a Woman. The Oscar, If they were giving him an Oscar nom for Dick Tracy, they just decided he's due. Well, yeah, they're just like, I don't know, how, how many more years does he have left? We gotta give him something. We missed out on Sea of Love, so let's do Dick Tracy. <laughs> Godfather 3 came out that year and he wasn't nominated. <laughs> we reviewed that, but yes... Listeners, if you want to support our show, we're heading into the last five weeks of our donation drive for spring. It's been huge. It has gone through spring and summer. Kids are going back to school. We're still talking about Al Pacino. (laughs) But we just reviewed last Friday Sea of Love. And the listener feedback from that's been really exciting so far. I'm surprised to see so many people wanted to hear about a sex thriller from the late 80s, but I'm glad because that's one I've always remembered. And yes, we've got Dick Tracy, Carlito's Way. I know another big one coming out in mid-August. We're reviewing Heat, which has been called The Ultimate Dude Film. Yeah, there's still plenty of interesting roles for Al Pacino to play and Righteous Kill. And we wrap up with a film I know nothing about, but it brings them together with Robert De Niro on the police force. It's been on my watch list forever. I mean, De Niro, Pacino, a cop movie. I actually wanted to see it when it came out 10 years ago and... We've been doing Now Playing a lot for the last 10 years, so I've never gotten to it, but I'm glad Now Playing's getting me there. And also, in just a couple weeks, if you're a patron of $10 or more, we're going to take you to New Jack City. Oh, rockabye, baby. I cannot wait to return to that one. I've always claimed it is Wesley Snipes' greatest role as Nino Brown, the crack kingpin who took on a housing project and got... Chris Rock cooked on the rock. Not the actor, but the drug. Yeah. So all of that supports our show and gets you hours and hours and hours of bonus content. I know Stuart's really put in the legwork on the research, on the Pacino stuff, whereas I have to listen to Uva Bowl commentaries. I don't know who got the better end of that deal. Eh, you know, there's some winners and there's some losers in the <laughs> filmography, but I'm slowly working through all the movies Al made to be able to put it all in perspective. And we'll be back with Teen Titans Go to the Movies next week. Till then... Mission accomplished.
president has invoked ghost protocol. We're shut down. No satellite safe house support or extraction. Thank you for listening to Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed this episode in the Mission Impossible retrospective series. Seems we have a lot to talk about, don't we? Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. Well, have you been away so long you've forgotten how good we are? Also at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find reviews of hundreds of other films, including the Avengers films, Rambo, the Ocean's Eleven films, the Batman movies, and hundreds more. I am gagging for it. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss this review with other listeners. Where else am I going to go? You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post written movie reviews. Links to our social media pages are at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Oh, that was nothing. That was um, fun. That was fun. understand you're very upset you've never seen me very upset now playing is an independent podcast with no sponsors or ads it's donations from listeners like you that keep now playing on the air relax luther it's much worse than you think you can give money by clicking the support link at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com are you in or not of course we're in Now playing is edited by Arnie. Well, this is not mission difficult, Mr. Hunt. It's mission impossible. Difficult should be a walk in the park for you. Now playing credit narration by Brock. Is he serious? Always. <laughs> the movie discussed in this podcast and the music used are the property of their copyright holders and no infringement is intended. My lawyers are going to have a field day with this entrapment jurisdictional conflict. Yeah, maybe we'll just leave the courts out of this one. The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. I don't have to tell you what a comfort anonymity can be in my profession. It's like a warm blanket. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2018, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. We were unprepared, in the dark, disavowed. And the only thing that functioned properly on that mission was this team. I don't know how we ended up together. I'm glad we did. God damn it, I'll watch my dogs bark. Hold on, this will only be Gene. a minute. Gene. It's coming home. Can't be so. Yes, it's. Try it. All right, god damn it. I'll watch Kelly and. You, you got into hour four Hoda. of Good Morning America? No. Hoda, Hoda and Kathy Lee? No, no, this is. 
So it was me and about uh, 20 other seniors there. I was the youngest person in <laughs> you the said crowd. 20 other seniors. Are you counting yourself among that? <laughs> well, 20 others, comma, all seniors. <laughs> and the MIF, Mission Impossible Force, no. And using his MIF's. The cinematographer is Rob Hardy, who's known mostly for shooting really good music videos and for some recent sci-fi movies that, with little money, have looked really great. Annihilation. You said sci-fi movies. I thought you meant S-Y-F-Y movies. Like, <laughs> this guy was doing Anaconda no, versus no. Brontosaurus or something. Yeah, this the DP from Sharknado 5. You, you didn't know? <laughs> yeah. I really thought this was what you meant. I'm like, wow, he really has come up in the world. That would be uh, <laughs> I need a to leap. see, like... That's a leap Ethan couldn't make. <laughs> I need to see Sharktopus <laughs> to see some great camera work is what you're telling me. And is it the White Queen? The White Queen, that's Emma Frost. Is it the... Oh, but he grabbed the... This is where he grabs the... Yeah, he grabbed the rope on the helicopter. No, that's the later yeah. one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. A lot of helicopters. I just don't know where he gets... Cashmere. It's a uh, northern province of India. Basically, it's not just for coats anymore. <laughs> Apparently not. But yes. I'm thinking of Martin Landau and Dustin Hoffman on Marathon Man. Yeah, uh, that's not Martin Landau. Oh. That's, um, oh God, uh, uh, Hamlet. I can't. L- Olivia. I, I hope Ethan Hawke is trained because this is like almost impossible if you're just an amateur to get out and of. You, wait, I'm going to stop you. You said Ethan Hawke. <laughs> oh, did I? Ethan Hunt, yeah. I keep wanting to say White Witch, Emma Frost. I, I kept wanting to say White Rabbit. I think you did at one point. It kind of went, you'll, I may you'll have. Hear it. You'll hear it on the show. I'm like, Alice in Wonderland, but okay. If I catch it, I'll have you re-record a lot. Yeah. I'll just, here, here, here. White Widow. White Widow. White Widow. White Widow. There. If, if I can do that, I'll do that. Um, 